In the new collection of essays, Apple Tree, 25 writers deftly explore a gesture, a trait, a belief they've inherited from a parent. Join Harper's Magazine for a night of conversation with three contributors on Thursday, September 26 at 7 p.m. at Book Culture on Columbus Avenue. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In the worlds of sports and politics, statistics seem to rule the day, even though those seemingly neutral facts are collected and shaped by all-too-human analysts like Nate Silver, who just can't say Bernie Sanders' name, even though he's consistently polled in the top three spots. In our September cover story, Rich Cohen reported from a no less political event, the annual NFL Scouting Combine, where the Wonderlick IQ test, which was designed to test intelligence under duress, as well as other feats of strength and speed, are used to determine which player is worthy of a first round draft pick and a million dollar contract. Yet given what we know about the physical toll of football, be it the inability to walk later in life or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the fame and fortune that comes with an NFL contract doesn't seem as innocent as it once did. I spoke with Cohen, whose sports writing has appeared in Harper's and the collection Rules of the Game, to discuss the combine process, those physical dangers, and the complicated nature of football fandom. One really interesting thread in this piece is your description of how much the draft process is driven by the results of very specific mental and physical tests, like the sprinting speed or the Wonderlick IQ test, which was designed to measure intelligence during duress. So could you talk about the Wonderlick test, like its origins as part of the combine process and how important it is or not today? And which positions need to be, quote, smarter than the quarterback, for instance? To simplify it a little bit, the Wonderlick test was invented, or I guess I'm not sure invented, created before the Second World War by a Northwestern graduate student as a kind of IQ test. But it's timed, and it's not a lot of time. So that uh, puts you under pressure to make decisions quickly and think clearly with a sort of a ticking clock. And it was picked up by the military and especially the Air Force as a good way to identify people who might make good pilots. And it was used as an IQ test by different businesses. And the, if you know about the history of the NFL, you know that and the NFL was really influenced by the Second World War, which is a whole, it kind of comes out of this, the modern NFL comes out of the Second World War. Part of that is Tom Landry, for example, who's this great coach for the Dallas Cowboys, was in the uh, Army Air Force and was exposed to the Wonderlick. And as the NFL offense became increasingly complex and you had to be smarter and smarter and a certain kind of intelligence to run it, which the quarterback does. Landry sort of remembered the Wonderlick and went back to that and began using that as a way to identify possible quarterbacks. And then that just became standard for the league. And so now we have this incredible amount of data on different players, different positions and how they did on the Wonderlick. Your assumption would probably be that the quarterback would be the smartest, at least at the Wonderlick, because the quarterback has to remember all the plays and not only remember all the plays, read all the defenses at the line of scrimmage and change the offense based on the matchups with the defense. It really is a lot. And, um, 
you see a lot of guys who are great college quarterbacks and can never really get the pro offense. So, but weirdly, the smartest players on the field, according to the Wonderlick, isn't the quarterback. It turns out to be the offensive linemen who are, and the center who sort of run the offense alongside the quarterback. So it's, it's a weird thing, but it, it has this, well, we can get more into it. But for me, what's so interesting about it is you basically, if you want to identify a great football player, you can't really know who that's going to be. And there is no test, but it's, that's too much uncertainty for so much money that you're spending. So they want to be able to look at numbers and have a reason to justify who they're drafting and why. So they wind up valuing them based on what they can measure. If they can't measure it, it's like it doesn't exist. That way, at least if they mess it up, they could say, look, he did great on the Wonderlick. He did great on this, this. Anybody would make this mistake. And that opens a lot of opportunities, in my opinion, for guys like Bill Belichick, who is the, you know, runs the Patriots and has won all these Super Bowls. Um, and people keep saying, where does Belichick keep finding all these players that sort of slip through the cracks? Well, clearly he's looking at a different set of criteria. Right. And could you talk about what could potentially or if there is a desire in the industry to try out new metrics or new tests? I don't know exactly what the metric is, but I do know that sometimes and I know this from my own life as a parent sitting through youth sports tryouts, because it really doesn't change that much from Mm -hmm. the time they're eight until the time they're 22 or whatever, which is some of these metrics actually make it more complicated than it really should be which is basically, is, is the person a good football player? I mean, surprisingly, that doesn't really come into it very much. So they pick these guys that on paper look great, but it has nothing to do with how they actually perform. I say this with particular pain because I'm a big Chicago Bears fan, <laughs> and the Chicago Bears went out and they picked this guy, Mitchell Trubisky, and I remember when they drafted him, he you know, is great at the Wonderlick, he's big, he's got a great arm, he's a great athlete. On every test at the Combine, he excelled. He's a superstar. When they drafted him, they said the only downside is he hasn't played a lot of football. Ooh. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna teach him how to play quarterback, which is like, and in the past, in my childhood, the Bears had this quarterback, Jim McMahon, who, the punky QB, who on all that combine stuff was terrible. He was short, mm-hmm. relatively short for the NFL. He was blind in one eye, half blind in one eye. He had a mediocre arm. He threw ugly passes. But he was just a great, great football player, and he would win games. And sometimes I think what Belichick is doing is making it more simple, not more complicated. He's just going out and looking at the guys who tend to win and signing those guys up, and they tend to do what they've always done. So you find a guy like Julian Edelman, who isn't picked very high because he's a quarterback and he's not big enough to play quarterback, and they move him to wide receiver. And, but what the guy is is he's just brilliant at winning football games and coming through in the clutch. And he fills his teams with those kind of guys. And it seems like a complicated thing, but it's actually more simple. I remember I did a book about the 85 Bears, and Bears GM had this great line. He said to me, when your best people are also your best players, you're in really good shape. And, I, and it's hard to say that about Belichick right now, actually, because he just signed Antonio Brown. But, um, <laughs> but it, best football people, let's say, rather than best character. Right. Maybe we'll get into that a little later, too. Um, But you just mentioned Jim McMahon and how his talents were not measurable at a combine level, but he had, like, that extra spark that it took to win a game. There are other fields where that is, you know, politicians, for example, 
actors. Maybe they're not particularly attractive, but there's something about them that just attracts you to them, that just makes you want to say, this person absolutely has to be, you know, the quarterback, the leading man, what have you. So could you talk about what that is in football like can you can you sort of expand on that sense of an extra spark well the 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 guy who start really one of the guys who started the nfl and started the bears was george hallett who'd been a great player at the university of illinois and then a great player in the nfl and then owned the bears and coached the bears up and through my childhood basically and he actually had a word for this quality which was the old zipperoo <laughs> which was just this extra and you know he couldn't define it and, but everybody knows that when they see it, it's just this extra thing. And that is what Jim McMahon had, and no Bears quarterback has had really since, which was I remember interviewing Steve McMichael, who was a defensive player on the Bears, and some of the other guys. They just, some of them didn't even like McMahon, but they just said they had this quality, you know. Like when he walked into a room, you just noticed him, and you wanted to be around him, and he drew everybody to him. And what it did was it gave the other players incredible calm and confidence that he was going to somehow win this football game and also it made the defense you see it all the time in football games Mm -hmm. if the defense has some sort of faith that the quarterback's going to get the necessary points the defense plays better the defense plays better the offense plays better and I was uh, just the other night I was they were talking about McMahon on TV and they said that he was he I forgot the exact number I think I put it in the stories but he was something like 28 straight wins as a starter Mm. for the Bears now, he only started 100 games because he got hurt. You know, he was hurt all the time because of the way, the, the daredevil quality with which he played, which was part of his charisma, I guess. And it's not just football. Like you said, it's all these other sports. is this intangible quality. It's the one player that when he shows up, the team completely changes. And I imagine it's in every field of life, and it really cannot be measured. And that's what keeps these games interesting, because if it could all be measured, you could just have a computer do the draft. You're having people take chances. And what's really interesting is the, is the gamesmanship of it, which is what somebody like Bill Belichick would do, is they would know who the best player in the draft is, but they wouldn't necessarily take that player first, mm. because they would know that they could get that player in the sixth round because nobody else sees them. They can get somebody else with the first pick, but the best player is going to be down lower in the draft. And that's an interesting thing that happened with the New York Giants this year, which is they picked this quarterback that maybe is now they just named as the starting quarterback of the Giants, and he's going to replace Eli Manning. And maybe he's going to be a superstar and a great player, but they did not need to use their first draft pick to get him because nobody else is looking at him. Speaking of new, you know, up-and-coming players, one of the big stories in football recently has been the sudden retirement of the 29-year-old Indianapolis Colts quarterback, Andrew Luck, who cited his extensive injuries as a reason for leaving the league. So how do you interpret the Luck story and the way fans reacted? And do you think more players will retire early now that there's more information available about the injuries involved? Personally, I think at this point in time, as a father of little kids, I think it's crazy to have your kids play tackle football. Yeah. You know, because of what they do know about it. I don't, I don't think Andrew Lux retired because of brain stuff, though. I think he retired because, you know, his whole body was being wrecked physically, the joints. And, you know, people don't talk about that. The fact that Earl Campbell, who was the greatest running back of his time, was in a wheelchair, you know, and that a lot. And 
when I did my book about the 85 bears, I went around and interviewed these guys. The first thing they would do is tell me, go through the list of all their various injuries, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and surgeries and dozens of surgeries on their knees, on their elbows. And that's not even getting into their, their heads and their brains, which is the most important. But something that somebody said stuck with me, which is one of these guys who played running back in the fifties said, he said, yeah, well, he was from West Virginia. He said, yeah, well, you know, they say that you, you play this rough game and these things develop later in life. He's like, but you know what else develops later in life? Black lung disease. That'll kill you too. <laughs> and if I didn't play pro football, I'd be in the mines and I'd have black lung disease. And that's when you're looking at the players of an earlier generation, that was often the choice for a lot of them. For a guy like Mike Ditka, who grew up in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, and is in the Hall of Fame as a um, you know, tight end, the first really modern tight end in the NFL, he would have been working in a steel mill or something. And he would have had just more problems than he had even as an NFL player. And so now I think that because of the money they get up front, because of the lives they, li- they lead in college, they have more options. And when you're given more options, now you're not looking at black lung disease or dementia. You're looking at dementia or playing golf. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that I think that because of that, a lot of those guys, you will see shorter and shorter careers. But what's interesting is the highly skilled position of quarterback. You have older and older players, you know, and we talk about the violence of the life of the quarterback. But the fact is, if you actually watch a football game on most plays, the quarterback isn't even touched. Hmm. I mean, they, they throw the ball or they hand it off. They're not even they don't even move around very much and they, they're not even touched. And then with the plays we look at are the ones where the, the offensive line breaks down and they get thrown to the ground. And the league right now is trying to even prevent that. So you get this situation where you have quarterbacks that are all around 40 years old because the knowledge of the game becomes more valuable than even the physical ability, if that makes sense. No, yeah, totally. And, I mean, you're talking about these rather dire choices earlier generations of players had to make between working in mines, working at a mill versus, you know, having fame and fortune in this very physically taxing league. But considering that fewer and fewer younger boys are playing now or getting into football, period, will this lead to a kind of class or racial divide like there is with the army where, you know, young men are looking to get out of these really bad circumstances and participate despite knowing the risks? I honestly don't really know. I mean, the way sports change always surprised me. I don't know what's going to happen with who's going to play because people just love the game no matter their wealth, their class, or anything. Mm. So you still see all kinds of privileged people. People come from fancy schools. They play too. I mean, some people just love, love, love football, and their parents love it. Honestly, I think the bigger threat for football, in my opinion, is that when you play a game as a kid or your siblings play the game or whatever, you appreciate it and understand it and become a fan of it in a slightly different way. Mm. You have a feel for it. And if you grow up in a country where fewer and fewer kids play football, fewer and fewer of those kids are going to be football fans in exactly the same way. So that's a huge part of youth football. When you're playing youth football, you're talking about, you know, 0.01% are going to play in the NFL or less. But a lot of those kids are going to be fans. You're creating a whole generation of fans. And as people move away from football, for all the reasons we're talking about, you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of fans. And you'll lose that connection of the game, which is the connection of playing it and understanding what the physical aspect of it means. And then it does become more like watching, you know, American Ninja Warriors or something on TV. <laughs> right. 
Um, is there any reason to think that the physical and psychological toll of football could get better? There's this false idea that the more padding you wear, the less you'll get, you know, it'll reduce the impact, but people tend to actually hit each other harder with padding as opposed to when you're just out there without any protection at all. So is there, is there a way to sort of amend the game so that, but without turning it into American Ninja Warrior or whatever? I mean, people will probably say that I'm wrong, but basically it's not just that, that the pads make people hit harder. I think that the helmets and the face masks have made the game more violent because Mm. people feel invulnerable and they feel invulnerable about themselves. So they feel invulnerable about other people. The sport that I played growing up was hockey. And I really see it with hockey, which is if you go back, hockey's had its own concussion problems and they added helmets and face masks. The head injuries have gone up because people are less careful about other people's heads because they feel like they're not even thinking about them. You know, nobody wants to kill somebody on a hockey rink. Nobody really wants to hurt anybody. But suddenly, if somebody seems like they're safe to you, you're not as careful with your stick. You're not as careful with your hands. And I always said, if you wanted to really make football safe, go back to the leather helmets because people were careful about other people's heads. They didn't tackle with their heads. And the helmet gives them a feeling of invulnerability. And basically, we know from the concussion studies that it doesn't even matter. It doesn't protect you from concussion helmets. Really, it protects you from cuts and, and, and that kind of injury. But the fact is what causes the concussion is your head moving and stopping like whiplash, which causes your brain to move around inside your skull. And the helmet doesn't really, doesn't really help with that. But I think that uh, – here's my point where I think people are going to disagree with me, which is basically – I don't think you can really reform football and I don't think you can take the violence out of it because I think football is violence. Mm -hmm. I almost think if you study the history of football, you know, in the Hitchcock movies, you always had a MacGuffin yes, and you follow like the briefcase that's been stolen around, but that's just a device so you can follow the story Mm -hmm. in football. The the ball itself is the MacGuffin. I mean, it's what gives the coherence to all the action, but the real game is the guys in the line smashing into each other and playing a giant game of shove over 100 yards. That's football. Mm -hmm. And if you remove that, it's not football anymore. It's something else. So whereas hockey, I could easily imagine a version of hockey with no physical contact, like no checking. And it's very close to what they do in the Olympics or what kids do until they're in high school. There's no checking. Mm -hmm. And it becomes more like basketball where there's contact, but the contact is just incidental. Like they happen to run into each other. It's not the point of the play. In football, you can't really remove the violence because the violence is the game. And, and that's part of its huge popularity is that it's an expression of, of kind of violence in, a, in an organized manner that people find fascinating. No, I, I think that's a very apt assessment of what is thrilling. And especially, you know, when somebody's running down a field, like sprinting at an incredible rate, this huge man, and then just sort of like diving for the ball or sort of rolling like it, it, it is like a it is a spectacle like there's no there's no way around that and it's and it's the incredible exciting thing of seeing people overcome it too of seeing yes. a quarter which you don't even see anymore really but like you know in the old days seeing a quarterback like jim jim mcmahon getting completely nailed mm. injured wiped out and getting up and playing on yep it's just that was always inspiring about it you know the fact that jim mcmahon Weirdly, if you watched him, and I keep talking about him because he was a quarterback when I was a kid in Chicago, he would actually get much better after he'd been hit. 
It was like the taste of blood in his mouth is what motivated him. And that's football. And that's why football is always a metaphor for life in a way that other sports really aren't because it's about a lot of people's, a lot of experience of life, which is just getting beat up, getting knocked down and continuing on. And that's sort of externalized in football. And if you take that out, it's just not football anymore. Yeah. And I have to ask because of, you know, everything we've just talked about and of course the controversy initiated by Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem and all this stuff about CTE it's a really complicated time to be a football fan so as someone who is deeply engaged with the game how do you how do you navigate that ethically and politically I I don't think I I really don't I mean I honestly I just I, I don't watch nearly as much football as I used to and I'd like to say it's for political reasons, but probably it's because the Bears haven't been that interesting. <laughs> if the Bears got great, I'd probably be watching more football. Yeah. But honestly, I feel like the league has gotten a little less interesting to me and a little more boring to me. And all the stuff you're talking about is probably part of it. I mean, boring might be the wrong word, but it's just you feel kind of exhausted by it. Yeah, the Super Bowl itself was incredibly boring. And, and it's still the individuals that you want to watch, you know, and the, fact, and the fact of protecting them so much, which is absolutely necessary, removes the individual aspect of it a little bit. You know, so just the idea of a thing in football, which we all accept, which is so weird, which is the medical tent, that they go, oh, he's in the medical tent right now, that there's a medical tent out on the field. And I would say, used to joke, like when you, college football, you really see it because there's so many games on at once. If you flip through the channels, you're like about a 30% chance any channel you flip to, it's going to be a player on the ground being worked on. They should just put it all in the surgery channel because that's what kind of it reminds me of more than sports half the time. So as far as navigating it, I just, there's so much stuff coming in from all these different sports at the same time, it's, it's impossible. But I do find that the game has just become, it's just more complicated in every way. And lately they said that the, I saw a thing that said that the numbers for football are up this season, which sort of surprised me because of all the things you're talking about. It's, it is like the circus. You just don't like to talk about politics at the circus. And I think that that's how most people turn it on. They don't even think about anything but what they're seeing on TV. As far as what's off the field, even what's going on in the owner's box, you don't even think about it. A couple of years ago, I was watching a Cowboys game, and they had a shot of the owner's box, and Chris Christie was in the o- Cowboys owners box. I'm like, what the hell? If there's ever been a reason to vote a guy out of office, that's it right there. <laughs> um, at the at the end of the piece, you point out that the most fortunate players might be the ones who aren't drafted. Was that sentiment ever expressed by anyone at the combine, or are those kinds of worries m- kind of repressed? Well, they're repressed because the, the smartest people, if they think about it, they will retire. Like mm-hmm. Andrew Luck did, you know, realizing I have enough money. I've done what I wanted to do. What's the next five years of my life look at? And what, and what am I paying? What's, what's the long-term outcome of this going to be? Which is, I'm, am I going to be, I saw a J.J. Watt quote where he said that he accepted that after the age of 50, he wouldn't be able to walk. I mean, why? Why did he accept that? See, I would retire right then if I were him, if I really thought that that was the outcome. I think like the young players, they want to be the best. They want to be better than the people they played in college with. They want to be drafted high just because that's an accomplishment. That's a status thing. That's what everybody wants. 
to be the first and be the best. And they're not focused on any of that other stuff. And it wouldn't be in your mind either if you were them. If you had been playing this game and trying to be the best on every field, on every team you were on, and here was the ultimate peak, of course you're going to go for it and not think about it. And I just don't think any of that comes into their mind. And that's the interesting thing about football, which is the guys who are being drafted are 21 years old. Okay, They're not thinking rationally about being 40 years old. Nobody can. They're only thinking about right now. And if you ask them to trade 10 years of later for three years in the pro right now, they would make that trade. So it's sort of our responsibility as adults, I'm 51, to protect their future selves from their younger selves, if that makes sense. Because unless it's an extraordinary person, they're never going to make the right decision. They're always going to trade right now for later life, which they don't even believe in. How can you believe in that when you're 22? When you're Mike Ditka and you're 23 years old and playing for the Bears, how can you believe in the 86-year-old Mike Ditka is even going to exist? You know, yeah. it's so, uh, I, I just don't even think that even ever, ever comes up. The reason why I came up with Andrew Luck is because Andrew Luck is a super smart guy who's been hurt, which means he's been out of the game watching it from the sidelines. And he can sit back and assess and say, what am I looking at here? And he's probably looking at the team's chances of winning the Super Bowl this year, and he's looking at the offensive line, and he's looking at the amount of money he has, and he's thinking, this next three years that I'm going to have to go through isn't going to be worth you know, not being able to remember how to find my way home when I'm 55 years old. Hmm. Yeah. No. Andrew Luck has a book club. So he has a special place in my heart. And he had it. One of his book choices was like my Cubs book. So I love him. Oh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so I probably can't really be trusted on Andrew Luck. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think he did. The, I, I think he did the smart thing and he's not the yeah. only one to do it. But and, he, you know, it all depends on your position. If you're the quarterback and you have a long term contract and you have a lot of guaranteed money, you can make that choice. If you're a running back who was drafted late in the draft, who has a one year contract that you only get the money if you play a certain amount of games and you figure you only have two or three years in the league and then who knows what you're going to do. It's a completely different decision. Andrew Luck, his decision, it was a luxury for him to be able to make that decision. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you cite Tom Wolfe's essay, Stalking the Billion-Footed Beast. To get back to some something else that's maybe a little less tangible to end on, what do you feel like people who aren't watching football are missing out on in terms of understanding the millions and millions of football fans in this country. Football is like American capitalism in its rawest state with teams actually with single owners who are billionaires. In the first generation of football, it was guys like George Hallis who were players who started teams like you'd start a softball team. And when George Hallis played for the team, he then owned the team. It cost him, I think, $10 or $100 to enter his team in the NFL and he gave him an IOU. He didn't even pay, you know, <laughs> and that team now is worth over a billion dollars. And it's still, that's one of the few teams that's still owned by Hallis's family. But most of these teams, those, that generation of owners who were players in the league or who were bookmakers or former boxers or whatever they were, that's all gone. They're replaced by guys who bought them as these kind of trophies. And they're having these, you know, weird auctions where they're basically scouting human beings who are going to be fed into this wood chipper of the league and injured. And when you really see them play, when you're talking about guys, a lot of them who could be Olympic track stars, 
who are the greatest athletes in the history of the world. And in two or three years, they're not going to be able to walk again. And we're taking them and we're just feeding them into a wood chipper. That's why I had that. Every time I watch it, it's like, why would you do this to any athlete? What you're about to do to them, which is you're going to pummel them until they can't walk. And their best option is to make enough money that they won't need to walk. And like J.J. Watt said, so I just think that you're seeing America with all the niceties removed and it's the good and the bad and it's the owners and the employees and, and it's just everything out there on the field. And when you get to the combine, which is a thing that's always covered, the real weirdness of the combine is never really discussed, which is to bring all these college kids there and have them sort of parade around for you and measure them and judge them as you'd measure and judge an inanimate object and then to have a bidding war on them. It's very strange. Yeah, and but it also harkens back to an earlier time in the U.S. where human beings were bought and sold on the auction block. Yeah. So it's... Right. But then you look at it the other way, which is then you sort of when you understand why did they do it in the first place? Because before that, if you didn't have something like that, the sports could never be competitive, again, because of capitalism, because a few teams would buy all the good players and you couldn't have any kind of competitive league. So there's the worst of American history, which you're talking about. But here's also the almost like a new deal idea of we have this system that's basically a capitalist system, but we have to regulate it. Yeah. So that's the other irony about the NFL, which is it's not really, it's almost socialist in the way they draft players and also the way they share revenue. They share revenue. So they don't let New York or Chicago or the big market teams take all the money that they would make because then they could use that to unfair advantage and you'd have just a few teams. And so they have to pool the revenue. So teams like Green Bay could become great teams, teams like Indianapolis, which is like, think about it. You know, when the league started, these cities were huge cities and competitors to New York. The NFL, they've had this sort of welfare system for the NFL. Those teams are still healthy all over the country in all these different cities. But in, in America, it's like almost only a few cities survive to become the big metropolises. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. This was uh, really fascinating to talk with you about all of this. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.